1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, and by way of introduction just to our text today, um, l- let, me, let me just say this. We were worshiping the Lord and I kind of thought about this. You know, when I, when I preach on, on Saturday, Sunday, really when I teach anywhere, um, usually the message that, that uh, I will keep for online, uh, nine times out of ten, it's the, it's the service that my wife attended. Um, I just preach better when she's in the house, um, but uh, it's not the same way when she teaches. She doesn't like me to come and listen to her teach, and, uh, and so this week, the ladies started their, their new study, and my wife was teaching, and so I, I snuck in uh, to listen to my wife teach without her seeing that I was there, and she said something that really blessed my heart, and, and I just kind of, for starters today, I just want to share this, um, that... You know, she pointed out to the ladies that, that so often what will happen is we will go through some sort of a crisis in our faith and we will immediately go to the Word to, to see how to navigate. And of course, that, that's good. We should do that. But she was pointing out that our regular times of study in the Word of God are so essential and so important um, as a, a preparatory thing, that we grow in the knowledge of the Lord and we grow in our doctrinal understanding um, of, of God and his word, and it informs how we navigate through our life. She didn't state it that way, but that's what she was saying. And so uh, today, we're going to be looking in our text at what happens in the future. Specifically, we're going to be looking at what happens when we die, what happens when Jesus returns, and how does it all work. And this is important. You know, some of you are dealing with the issue of death on a very personal level. Some of you, maybe not so much, but uh, the topic is important for several reasons. One of the reasons, psychologists have determined that the fear of death is one of the top two fears of mankind. Uh, And uh, the the first one is not death, actually. The the greatest fear that people have, statistically speaking, is, uh, is fear of loneliness. That's the greatest fear that people have. And the second greatest fear is the fear of death. And the medical community has a name for the fear of death. It's a Greek compound word, uh, thantophobia. Uh, Thantos refers to the Greek god of death, and phobos is the Greek word for fear, and so the fear of death. And this fear is so strong among human beings that the anthropologist Ernst Becker hypothesized this. He said that everything that people do, The goals that we set, our passions, our hobbies, the activities that we engage in, he hypothesized that they are all, in essence, coping strategies that people focus on to escape the reality of eventual death. And the statistics are overwhelming, right? One out of every one person dies. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then to face uh, judgment. And so the question then becomes, when we deal with this issue of death, how can we overcome this fear? And, you know, depending on who you talk to, the world has a lot of theories about the afterlife, right? About death and what happens after that. Atheists, they believe that this world is all you get. That, that however long you get here after you die, that's it. You check out and there's nothing after that. Uh, Mormons believe that if you live a good life and 
<clears throat> do the good, which is a, a saying that they, that they have in the Mormon faith. Uh, it's all based on your works and, and all. And if you do the good, if you live a good life, then what they believe is that after you die, you get your own planet, and guys, you get to repopulate it with a multitude of wives, right? That's what they believe. Now, the Hindus and the Buddhists, they have a different belief about death. They believe in reincarnation, right? That you die and then you come back as something else. Now, uh, you've, you've probably heard me share the famous cowboy poem about reincarnation. I'll share it to you this morning, share it with you this morning that, you know, just kind of puts it into perspective. Uh, one, uh, you know, the, the poem goes this way. Um, what is reincarnation? A cowboy asked his friend. Well, it starts as old pal told him when your life comes to an end. They wash your face and comb your hair and they clean your fingernails and they put you in a padded box away from life's travails. Now, the box in you goes in a hole that's been dug in the ground and reincarnation starts in once you're planted neath that mound. Them clods melt down just like the box and you who is inside, and that's when you begin your transformation ride. And in a while, the grass will grow upon your rendered mound until someday upon that spot, a lonely flower is found. And then a horse may wander by and graze upon the flower that once was you. Thus has begun your vegetative bower. Now the flower that the horse done ate, along with the grass and other feed, makes bone and fat and muscle essential to the steed. But there's a part that he can't use, and so it passes through, and there lies upon the ground, this thing that once was you. <laughs> now, if perchance I should pass by and see this on the ground, I'll stop a while and I'll ponder at this object that I've found, and I'll think about reincarnation and life and death and such, and I'll come away concluding, well, you ain't changed all that much. Right? <laughs> reincarnation. So we got all these crazy notions about life, right, and about the afterlife. Thankfully, we don't have to speculate about what happens in the future because the Bible tells us what happens in the future. And as we continue in our study today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, here's what Paul's going to address. I'm going to put this on the screen for you. Five truths that offer us encouragement and comfort after death and hope for the future. So we're going to look at those five truths together. And the first truth that Paul cites, you can write it down, the revelation of God. Verse 13 is where we pick it up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul says, but I do not want you, speaking to the Thessalonians, to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who who are asleep. Now here's what's going on. Paul, he went to the Thessalonians. We know in our study of this book that his original meeting with them and his planning of this church was just a matter of a few weeks. And then Paul moved on 
And uh, he had poured into them. This young church is going on. He has concern for them. He sends Timothy to strengthen them. Timothy comes back with a report. This letter is a follow-up now uh, to all of that. And when Paul was with them, he had emphasized the soon return of Jesus Christ. And the Thessalonians believed it, and, and they, they began to, to live lives of faith. But after Paul left... Well, they began to be troubled when people within their Christian community would die. And they began to worry about those Christians who died before Jesus came back. And their fear, their trouble in their heart was that they might miss out on that great future event of Jesus Christ returning. And so this is what Paul is addressing. And he begins by saying... I don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. Now, I want to call your attention to two key words there in verse 13. Uh, the word is ignorant and the word is sleep, right? Those two words. Uh, first of all, when Paul says, I want to talk to you about those who have fallen asleep, and I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep, he's speaking of death right? Sleep was a common term used to express death in the ancient world. We see it used several times in the Bible uh, that, you know, the, the, there were a couple instances where Jesus, referring to people who had died, had talked about, you know, that, uh, you know, hey, they're, they're, they're not asleep, they're, 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 you know, or they're not dead, they're asleep kind of thing. And among non-Christians, this idea of death was that when you died, you went into an eternal sleep. Uh, Roman philosophers uh, would say things like, uh, hopes are among the living, but the dead are without hope. Or, or they, another Roman philosopher said, suns may set and rise again, but we, once our brief light goes down, must sleep an endless night. And here's the deal. These uh, Roman philosophers were ignorant about death, and that's the second word there in verse 13 um, that Paul emphasizes. That word ignorant, it's where we get our word agnostic, and agnostic literally means I don't know. That's what it means. Uh, gnostic, gnostic means to know. You put the A in front of it. That means to not know. And, uh, and the... This is where, you know, the Roman philosophers were in regards to death. This is where a lot of people are today regarding uh, death. Scientists, philosophers, spiritualists, many of them simply don't know what, what death is all about and what happens after we die. But Paul solves the mystery there in verse 15, in case you didn't miss it. He says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. By the word of the Lord. In other words, what Paul is saying is, look, you don't have to be ignorant about what happens after you die. Certainly, none of us know from, from our own human experience or anything that the world has to tell us what happens after we die, right? But God knows. God tells us in his word. We have the revelation of his word. And I want you to notice also in verse 13 that what Paul says is that this revelation from God brings hope. Brings hope. Let me put uh, verse 13 in the New Living Translation up on the screen for you. Paul says, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. That word translated grieve in the New 
uh, Living Translation, or sorrow if you have the New King James uh, translation. Uh, it literally means to cause pain. It means to cause grief. It means to cause distress. And it's written in the active sense in the Greek. And the idea is this, that the pain, the grief, the sorrow of death, it is both active and it's ongoing. By the way, this is true for both Christians and non-Christians, right? Anybody who has lost a loved one can attest to this fact, that, that the pain, the grief, the sorrow of death, it's an it's active. It's ongoing. Some of you, you're going through that now. You're dealing with that. I had a gentleman last night after the service come up to me and tell me that he just lost his mom a couple of months ago. And, and you know, how God's word ministered to him and, and brings him comfort because his pain, his grief, his sorrow, it's active. It's ongoing. But Christians have a hope in death that unbelievers don't have. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here right? That we have a hope in death that unbelievers don't. Paul says in verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. You see, the fundamental message of the gospel is that Jesus died and he rose again. And we worship a God who has conquered Satan, who has conquered sin, and who has conquered death. And he rose from the grave, and the scriptures overwhelmingly teach that as we place our faith and our hope in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins in our place, that you and I both share the hope of resurrection. We share the hope that, that death is not the end for us, right? And so... Paul says that Christians, when they die, they sleep in Jesus. And let's, let's unpack that, that term sleeping in Jesus. What Paul is not saying is that uh, those who die in the saving faith in Christ go into a state of suspended animation when they die and they're waiting for the resurrection to consciousness. You see, the Bible makes it clear that for Christians who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that when they die, the Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the Bible emphasizes that in his presence is fullness of joy. That's the idea of sleeping in Jesus, that we have rest in Jesus' presence. But it is a rest that is fully conscious, fully alert, and fully aware. Jesus told the thief on the cross, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Not in a state of suspended animation, you will be with me, Jesus said, in paradise. One moment, it's been said, you'll take your last breath on earth, and the very next moment, your next breath, breath will be in the presence of Jesus, right? Now, here's the thing. You and I are created for eternity. You're created for eternity. Your flesh is not created for eternity, but your soul and your spirit are created for eternity. And the question isn't if you will exist after death, the question <coughs> is, where are you going to exist after death? That's the question. Because the Bible paints a picture for those who are hidden in Christ Jesus that after 
our physical body dies, that our soul, our spirit, we will be in the presence of the Lord. In his presence is fullness of joy. But the Bible also paints a terrifying picture that for those who have rejected Jesus Christ, there will be an eternity that you live in the afterlife outside of the presence of, of the Lord. And it is a place of eternal torment, the Bible says. It is a place of, of, of just overwhelming anguish. And the Bible calls this hell. And so the question isn't if you will exist after death. The question is where. Understand, your physical body, it's just the tent that your soul and your spirit live in, right? It's a tent or it's a house, for your soul and for your spirit. And when you die, the Bible says in James chapter 2 that your body is dead, but that your spirit and your soul remain, right? And for everybody who trusts in Jesus Christ, the Bible promises us that we are going to have a new home. Paul said this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5. He said, for we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body, made for us by God himself and not by human hands. I like the way uh, David Guzik describes this in his commentary. He says, the Christian death is a change of address. It's like laying down for a nap and waking in glory. It's moving, not dying. When a non-believer dies, we mourn for them. When a believer dies, we only mourn for ourselves because they are with the Lord. Now, this brings comfort for those who are in Christ, but what about those loved ones who have died and you're unsure about their eternal fate? You don't know whether they had a saving faith in Jesus Christ or not. That's a question a lot of people struggle with, and many people have come to me with that struggle. Man, I don't know about my mom. I don't know about my dad. I don't know about my loved one and, and their status. Let me say two things about that this morning. Number one, understand God is a God of love who desires that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. God desperately loves you and wants a relationship with you. He takes no pleasure in people going to hell. So if you have a loved one who has died and you're unsure of their faith, know this, that the Bible says that God's truth stands firm like a foundation stone with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. Ain't, ain't nobody going to slip through the cracks. God knows who are his. And, and if the loved one that, that passed away, if there's any chance that they, that they knew the Lord, God's not going to lose them, right? But here's the second thing that I have to say. Outside of a saving faith in Jesus, the Bible offers no assurances of salvation. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that there is only one way to eternal life, and that's through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And people, they'll, they'll say, you know, in, in ignorance, they'll say, you know, how could a God of love send people to hell? And I always say, and you've probably heard me say this, God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves there. See, because God desires so much that you would not die and go to hell that he sent Jesus Christ to give his life as a ransom for many. And he begs and pleads with you, please choose life. He's done everything he can to ransom and redeem you from your sin and from the, the penalty of sin, which is eternal death. 
right? And, and so God has done this through Jesus Christ. But if you reject Jesus, then you have made the choice to separate yourself from God. So God doesn't send non-believers to hell. They send themselves there by rejecting Jesus Christ. And this is why the Bible says today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. The Bible says, indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Now, sadly, some people will reject the gospel because they don't like the implications of the gospel. Uh, they'll say something like, well, gosh, I'm, I'm hearing the gospel, but if I believe it, that means that my father isn't saved, my departed father or my departed mother isn't saved. And, and so I don't like that, so I'm not going to receive the gospel and believe in the gospel because, because I don't like the implications for the people I love who have already departed. That means that they're in hell, and so I'm not going to believe. And here's what I say to that. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. Rejecting the truth won't change their destination. It will only change yours. It will only change yours. So the first truth that offers us encouragement and comfort after death and hope for the future is the revelation of God. God says, you can know for sure and not be ignorant about death and its implications. I've told you in my word what it's all about. Now the second truth here that we have that offers us encouragement and comfort after death and hope for the future is the return of Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 15. Paul says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until, here it is, the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Understand, first of all, when, talks, when Paul talks here, about the coming of the Lord. He's not talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. When Jesus will come as a conquering king to pour out his wrath, right, against a non-believing world. What Paul is speaking about here is a time when Jesus will return for his church before his second coming. You see, we live in an age right now known as the church age, and it's kind of this parenthesis in time between the prophecies given uh, regarding how God is going to deal with the world and save sinners and judge sinners. And so what happened is Jesus Christ came and he, and he gave his life as a ransom for many and we read in the book of, of Acts how he ascended into heaven after his resurrection. He passed the baton on his, onto his disciples. He said, go and make disciples of all the nations, right? And, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says, lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And that entered the church Age And for the last 2,000 years, Jesus Christ has been saving and ransoming and redeeming as many people as he can possibly reach, right? And, and at some point in the future, what's going to happen is that God is going to say, all right, time to judge sinners, time to, to redeem my church, time to rescue my church. And he's going to descend from heaven with a shout. It's going to be like, everybody out of the pool, you know? And he's going he's gonna to take his church out before he pours his wrath out on an unbelieving world. And so that is what is in view here. When Paul says in verse 15 that Jesus Christ is going to return, 
The idea is he's going to return for his church. And understand, when the Lord returns for his church, there's two groups of people. There are those who have died in faith that return with him, and then there are those who are still living in faith on this earth. Both of these groups together comprise the church. And Jesus has promised the church that he will come for us and that he will bring us to himself. He told his disciples, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Again, he told them, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is the heart of God. And so for 2,000 years, he's been building his church, generation after generation, and as believers die in faith, Jesus receives them unto himself, and at some point in the future, the church age is going to end, the last person is going to be saved, and that's when Paul says in verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, right? And so uh, he goes on to verse 17 saying, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now what we have in view here is, no, is what's known as the resurrection of life. Again, we're looking at five truths here in the text that offer us encouragement and comfort after death and hope for the future. We've seen the revelation of God. We've seen the return of Christ. And here we have in view the resurrection of believers. Understand that the Bible teaches that there are two resurrections. Okay? I don't want to confuse you. I'll make this as clear as I can. We have what's in view here in 1 Thessalonians 4 as the resurrection of life. And then uh, the Bible speaks of a second resurrection, and it's the resurrection of judgment. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see that believers have a resurrection to judgment. And in Revelation chapter 20, we see that unbelievers have a, a resurrection to judgment as well. In 2 Corinthians 5, the believers have a resurrection to judgment at a place called the judgment seat of Christ. In Revelation chapter 20, unbelievers have a resurrection, right, to judgment, and that's known as the great white throne judgment. At the great white throne judgment, what's going to happen is that all those who've rejected God are going to come before the, the great white throne judgment, and what's going to happen is God is going to judge them by their works. You don't want to be judged by your works, okay, for, as, as it pertains to salvation. You can't do good and try hard enough to make yourself right with God. There's only one person who, do, who does good, and that's the person, Jesus Christ. Jesus who died on the cross for our sins in our place, right? And so the resurrection of believers that we see in 1 Thessalonians 4, that's based on Jesus' work for you. If you place your faith in him, you will experience that first resurrection, the resurrection of believers, or the resurrection of life, as it's been called. And then what happens for you, there will be a second resurrection, so to speak. It's a resurrection of judgment, for a believer, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You will go before the judgment seat of Christ. And what's in view there is not God judging whether or not you're saved. That's already been settled. 
When you go to the judgment seat of Christ, he's going to judge your works, not in regards uh, to to, uh, rescuing you. He's going to judge your works in regards to rewarding you. And, and, and that's a trippy thing because you're like, well, if I've already been resurrected to heaven, like what more reward is there than that, right? But the Bible basically says that our works are going to be judged by God in regards to the reward that we're going to receive as Christians. Now, we've already received heaven, but, but what's going to happen? God's going to judge at the judgment seat of Christ all everything that you've done, everything that you've done in, in His name, everything that you've done in service for Him, everything you've done in worship to Him. And the Bible makes it clear there that some of your works are going to go, by, go through the judgment seat of Christ and they're going to come out the other side through this fiery trial, you know, wood, hay, and stubble. They're just going to be burned up. It's going to be like, yeah, you went on that missions trip to Italy, but really you just wanted an Italian vacation. So uh, that, that, that's wood, hay, and stubble, you know. Um, but other stuff is going to come through the fire of God judgment there at the judgment seat of Christ that's going to be gold and silver and precious stones that's going to come out the other side. And the Lord's going to be like, man, you know, this thing that you did in my name, it was truly in my name, you're going to be rewarded for that. And what that reward is, we don't know. We get this beautiful picture in the book of Revelation of the, of the apostles worshiping the Lord and how they cast their crowns at the feet of the Lord in worship. And I kind of see that as, you know, the crown is their reward for their faithful service. And they have something to give to the Lord even in heaven in worship of him. Right? And so we have this resurrection of believers. Right? And what's in view here in 1 Thessalonians 4 is this first resurrection. It's a resurrection of life. It's a, hey, you're hidden with Christ. In God, with, you're hidden in God with Christ Jesus, right? And, and, and so, so you're saved. You're, you're brought into that place where you're, you're resurrected. And Paul says here in verse 16 that Jesus is going to give a shout. That word shout uh, in the Greek, it's the same word that would be used as like a ship captain might, might give a shout of command to, to the, the deckhands or like a, a general might give the shout of command to his soldiers. And what is the command that the Lord gives at this point? Here's the command, it's to arise. It's to, it's to arise, it's to be resurrected. In Luke chapter 8, we got this beautiful story. There's this Roman centurion. He's come to the Lord. He's like, my daughter's sick. Please come heal her. And the Lord's kind of delayed going there. Um, and so we pick up the story in Luke chapter 8, verse 51. I'll put it on the screen for you. It says, when Jesus came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except for Peter, James, and John, and the father and the mother of the girl. And now all wept and mourned for her. But he said, do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside. He took her by the hand, and he called, saying, Little girl, arise. And then, verse 55 says, her spirit returned, and she arose immediately. That word arose, it's, it's you know, this, this whole story is a picture of resurrection, and that word arose that's used there, it's used to describe the resurrection of this little girl. It's the same word that we see here in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, right? To describe the resurrection of the dead in Jesus Christ. Paul says that when Jesus returns, he's going to give this same command. To those who have died in faith in Jesus Christ, to rise up 
And notice also the command isn't just for those who have died in Jesus Christ to rise up. He gives the command as well to those who are alive and remain on the earth when he returns. Look again at verse 17. Paul says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall be shall always be with the Lord. This is a picture of the rapture of the church. Let's go back to our outline. Five truths that offer us encouragement and comfort after death and hope for the future. Number one, the, re the revelation of God. He tells us what's going to go down. Number two, the return of Christ. He is going to return. Number three, the resurrection of believers we've just looked at. And now here we're looking at, number four, the rapture of the church. Paul says that the dead in Christ, as well as the living, will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now that, that phrase, caught up in the Latin Vulgate, it's the word raptus. This is where we get our word rapture from. And, and, and here's the idea. There's a difference between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus, right? And, and what happened, and, and let me explain it this way. So, at the end of the world, you know, the, we all, everybody hears, you know, Armageddon and, and you know, this great battle that's going to happen. Basically, what's going to happen is that there's going to be a tribulation period. The Bible teaches this emphatically. The Bible says that, it, that at some point in the future that Antichrist is going to come on the scene and that he's going to set up this, this, this whole world system that he's going to rule over. And this is a time of great tribulation on the earth. And the Bible teaches that God, and we see it here in 1 Thessalonians 4, God's going to take the believers out of the world before he pours his wrath out on an unbelieving world. I covered this whole thing in, in our teaching through the book of Revelation. If you haven't heard that, you can go online. You can listen to our teaching through the book of Revelation. But basically, that's what's going to come in the future, that God is going to pour his wrath out on an unbelieving world. But before God pours his wrath out, he takes the righteous out of the way because he doesn't want to pour his wrath out upon you, his children. Okay, and, and we see that biblically, by the way. You see, before in, in Noah's day, before God poured his wrath out on the earth, what did he do? He took the righteous and he put them in the ark and he sealed them into the ark and he protected them, right? Before God poured his wrath out on Sodom and Gomorrah, what did he do? He pulled the righteous out before he did this, right? And so we believe that what happens here and what the Bible teaches is that a day is coming in the future when God is going to judge the world through a seven-year period of, of tribulation. First three and a half years will kind of seem like everything's cool. The last three and a half years are going to be hell on earth. But before any of that goes down, God's going to say, everybody out of the pool. He's going to take his church out. He's going to rapture his church. And we're going to be caught up together to meet the Lord. And so this is, this is what's in view here. The rapture gives us the great hope for the future because we won't have to suffer through God's wrath as it's poured out. And the rapture also gives us a great encouragement and comfort after death. Why? This brings us to our fifth point, the fifth truth that we see here that offers us encouragement and comfort after death and hope for the future. That's the reunion of Christ's people. The reunion of Christ's people. Look again, verse 17 and 18. Then we 
who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. Who's the them? The them is those who have departed. Who's the we? That's the we who are alive and remain. And by the way, let me just hit the pause button and just say, would you notice that Paul expected to be among the we when he wrote this? See, Paul and the rest of the disciples, they lived with the expectancy of the immediate return of Jesus Christ. They all believed that Jesus would return in their lifetime. Now, he didn't. He hasn't. And the Bible makes it clear why he hasn't, because he wants as many saved as possible, right? And so, so he, he's delayed his return so that as many people over the last 2,000 years can be saved as possible, right? Now, Paul was wrong that Jesus didn't return in his lifetime, but this is the way the Bible wants you and I to live. The Bible wants us to live believing that Jesus can return at any moment because, number one, he can. I mean, Jesus could return today before you get to see the Titans game this afternoon. Like, Jesus could return, right? And, and that, that can happen. And what that does, if we live with that expectancy, that it informs how we're going to live our faith, right? And so it's a healthy way to live. Now, if he doesn't, that's cool. Because Paul just taught, if you die in faith in Jesus Christ, you immediately go to be in the presence of the Lord, and then he's going to come back, and at some point in time in the future, there's going to be some other guy like you who's living out his faith, waiting for the immediate return of Christ, and he all of a sudden he's going to say, hear the Lord go, get up here, and he's going to be taken up. But you're already going to be there, and he'll, they'll meet you in the air, right? And this is the encouragement, the reunion of Christ's people, because a day is coming when we are going to be reunited with those who have died in faith before us. Those loved ones of yours who died in the same faith of Jesus Christ, they haven't been lost. You're going to be reunited with them. A guy was talking to his pastor, and his wife had recently died. And his pastor, offering him some consolation, he said, man... I'm so sorry that you lost your wife. And the guy said, look, I didn't lose her. I know exactly where she is. And I'm going to see her again. Because her life is hidden with Christ in God. So the day is coming when we're going to be reunited with the loved ones who have departed. And we're also going to be united with the Lord. I told you when we started, and now I'm going to wrap this message up, that there are two fears that man has predominantly. Number one is loneliness. And number two is death. Hey guys, both of those fears are settled by the gospel. Settled by the gospels. You are not alone. Jesus promised he'd never leave you. He'd never forsake you. Jesus promised that those that you love who have departed, you're going to be reunited. That day is coming. You're not alone. And death, hey, for the believer, it's not the end. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and in his presence is fullness of of joy. Paul said this to the Corinthians. He said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Put that on a sticker on the diapers in the nursery there. Hey, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, 
at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Three questions for you to take a walk with this week. I'll put them on the screen for you. They'll be up after the service as well. Number one, what are some of your greatest fears, and what does the Bible have to say about those fears? We've looked at death. The Bible has a lot to say about it. Top two fears of mankind. It's the second most fear. Second question, how should the imminent return of Christ influence your conduct today? And third question, in what ways is the rapture of the church reflected in the stories of Noah and of Lot? And how can that give us hope and encouragement today?